Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pessimism at Its Finest. I'm your host, Alexandria, and this is your first episode of 2024. And to start the year off with a bang, I'm going to release a guest interview that I did in fall 2023 with Daniel Tujor, the author of Ghost of the Wilderness. So Ghost of the Wilderness is an everyday guy's search for America's rare and elusive wildlife. And this was published on October 2nd, 2023. And you can get the book on Amazon Prime. I'm a fiction reader. If you know me, I read a lot of fiction. And this is a nonfiction book. And I'm going to say it was super digestible. The reason why this episode actually took so long to release is because I really wanted to take the time to read the book and to give my honest feedback. What I will say is that this book was almost like listening to a voice note from a friend, but with a base of hiking and discovering new animals and wildlife. So imagine you got that from your really close friend. And so it was really engaging in that way. I recommend this to anybody who really doesn't know a lot about hiking and really doesn't know a lot about the American Southwest. And also, if you're a fiction reader and you want to shake it up, but you don't want that long, thick book, you want something digestible, I really recommend this book to you. It really is well-written and you will learn so much. If you don't learn a lot through reading alone, you'll learn a lot through this episode, but I really recommend that you read the book. Now, I'm not a hiker or a nature person. I'm a city girl through and through. Um, So this is a discovery read to me. And if you're a hiker, I feel like the book would come off as more of a discussion between two hikers. But if you're not and you're an urbanite like me, like this will really be an inspiration of the environment to you in some ways. And I like that it's written in a way that we can understand. But If you are going to dive into this episode, I have to tell you the highlights for me. Daniel is probably one of the most interesting and engaging guests I've ever had on the podcast. And I learned so much from him. He's just a plethora of knowledge. But I think the, the most fun fact I learned from Daniel was about the TMZ 30 mile zone. And you have to listen to the podcast to find out more about that. I didn't know about this at all. Um, also, Daniel explaining rock art to me, past my understanding in Red Dead Redemption 2, the game, was amazing. But the most shocking fact he said to me is that he actually stays in hotels. And if you listen to the podcast, you're going to find out more. But it completely debunked my thoughts about hikers just being one with the animals, one in the wilderness. And being intimate with the animals in that way, he's like, no, I stay in hotels and I fill up my water bottle with the good water, the filtered stuff. And I was not expecting that. So overall, I enjoyed learning about Daniel. I asked so many questions, so many, because I just had so many things I wanted to know. I could have talked to him for two to three hours. He's that knowledgeable. Um, But I obviously only had an hour and you're going to listen to that hour. But he has amazing adventures that led to him writing his book. And I hope that not only do you take the time to listen to this episode and learn so many interesting things about Daniel, his book, his adventures, animals in the American Southwest, the American Southwest. He also defines it for us. 
but I hope you take time to read his book as well and take both into consideration. You will definitely, definitely walk away with a greater appreciation for hikers, which I definitely did. And so without further ado, we're going to go on to the episode. And I hope that you all enjoy learning about Ghost of the Wilderness with Daniel Tujor. I hope you had a good hike today as well. Yes, I did. Thank you. I'm always trying to get my mileage in. So I'm heading out again tomorrow and uh, it's really become a lifestyle. So Daniel, tell me about yourself. My name is Daniel Tujor. I am the author of Ghosts of the Wilderness, an everyday guy's search for America's rare and elusive wildlife. And I have a, a day job, but I pursue hiking and scrambling over rocks and searching out um, rock art and animals on my nights and weekends. So I thought I'd write about it. I mean, that's a good thing to write about. Now, before you start, I have to ask you, how do you balance hiking and and working? Because you hike a lot. You have to hike a lot to write a book like this. So how do you balance that in your like day-to-day life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have a job that uh, takes up a lot of my time and I enjoy my job. I think I can make a difference through my job and, and I do. Um, so I definitely don't want to uh, skimp on that or distract my attention from it. Um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, I don't have kids. So that frees up a large amount of my time. And um, I'm then able to use that for pursuing hiking and all the side uh, adventures that that entails. So that might be a big part of it. Um, But I'm also very efficient uh, in my planning, in um, what I try to do on a daily basis. And uh, just grateful and fortunate that I've been able to make uh, both of these passions work for me, hiking and my day job. That's a good way to put it. It's a very good way to put it. And I think based on your introduction as well, I had another question because it reminds me of Red Dead Redemption, the game. How do you find rock art? Because I don't know if you've played it, but there's a huge like rock art kind of uh, mission in the game. How do you find rock art? And are there maps that indicate where they are how hard is it to find is there any award for finding them or is it more like self-satisfaction yeah I, I am familiar with red dead redemption and i might have played the first one uh whenever that was a, a decade ago or more perhaps um so i did not know they had a rock art uh, mission that's pretty neat in game uh, two. Oh, okay i miss it then <laughs> So uh, rock art is something that is not very well publicized, as uh, you might imagine, um, especially if that rock art is near a major metropolitan area, um, because if people knew exactly where it was, they could go there in large numbers. And because so much of it is remote, they could potentially damage it. Um, So in the the rock art community or whatever you want to call it, um, people kind of give pointers about where this art might be, Mm. maybe this valley. And then it's sort of up to you to find that rock art uh, based on a blog image of the surrounding area or just to trek through it and and find it yourself, Um, which is part of the adventure and discovery. Most of these pieces are known to science, so to speak. 
So you're not necessarily the first person uh, since uh, the civilization in which the, those images were created to see it. But to have that intimate encounter where you might be the only human for a 20 mile radius um, and you're with this rock art, it's, it's very personal. And uh, you sort of commune with uh, the artists that put it together. So are these rock art, the rock art itself, or the imagery, are they done by like indigenous communities or does a person generally go in and do it? Or is it naturally occurring just based on the erosion of the rocks over time? You know, a lot of the natural erosion patterns do trick the eye and you think that it's a human piece of art many times. Yeah. Um, so I'm led astray by that in my searches all the time. Um, but they're normally done by indigenous community members. Um, there was a, a one piece near me where uh, Cabrillo, who was one of the Spanish conquistadors that first sailed into um, a, a harbor on the West Coast, um, he, his ships were represented in a, a piece of rock art. And there's some question as to whether perhaps the sailors themselves did this, but it seems like uh, this was uh, an indigenous community member um, documenting uh, this interaction that had occurred. Uh, there's also uh, two main categories of rock art. There's one that's chipped or scraped away from you know, the rock itself, and that's a petroglyph. And then another style could be where it's painted on the rock, and that's a pictograph. So now you have some terminology. <laughs> now I definitely have terminology. I've learned so much about rock art in the last five minutes. <laughs> All I know is that I went into Red Dead Redemption 2 and it was really hard to find the rock art in that game. And so I can't imagine how hard it would be in real life. So this is very intriguing. Thank you. for. It sounds realistic then. They're not um, giving you false illusions about how difficult it is to find the art. That's good to they hear. Don't. They don't, and you kind of have to follow like a map with a potential geocache and look in the area and see if you see it. So it's a little bit challenging. So they're not lying. And I believe it's as hard as it is in real life. So that was a great depiction of it. So <laughs> to spearhead from that, I have to know what got you into hiking and what was your first hiking experience? Yes, I did not grow up in the Boy Scouts, unfortunately. That really wasn't available um, near my hometown for my age range. And uh, so I really didn't get into hiking until I was a young adult, uh, finishing up college and, and then more so after that. Uh, so I started in the Midwest and I'd go into uh, woods or forests and swamplands there and um the East Coast, many of the forests have been logged before, but this particular forest had never been logged. And it just blew my mind that there was this ground that had been covered by trees since who knows when, maybe the woolly mammoths when the, the uh, glaciers were melting. And it, it uh, was a very big connection to the past. And then when I moved out to the American Southwest, one of my coworkers mentioned uh, one day that he was going to hike a thousand foot peak uh, nearby. And I, I really didn't know about mountains. I thought, what is that? Do you need Everest style gear, oxygen masks? Uh, what is it? You can just go up a mountain. And uh, I was a little bit ignorant about it. So uh, I, I did that four mile hike um, myself. Um, 
And I guess that was my first West Coast uh, hike. And perhaps um, the Midwest hikes were just wandering into the forest. So those uh, encounters started my obsession and passion. So what do you mean by a forest that isn't logged? Like they haven't picked up the logs that they chopped down or that have naturally fallen over? Is that what it means? Uh, Logging, like the logging industry. Uh, The the lumber uh, industry would go in and clear it out. And um, then there would be a new growth. Uh, You know, they would leave that land and new trees would come up. And you might not be able to recognize it at first. um, And unless you looked for certain signs that this had actually been logged before by humans. So um, a lot of the East Coast forests in uh, Canada and the U.S. are... (laughs) Uh, sort of second, third, fourth growth for us, where the, the prior growths have been cleared out and either intentionally allowed to regrow or just abandoned. Um, and so when you can find uh, pristine forests that uh, is undisturbed, at least as long back as climate conditions allowed for that forest to grow, uh, that's a pretty neat moment. Okay, that's very interesting. I thought I originally thought that meant that trees naturally fell over or the lumber was just kind of left. So this is interesting to know that a lot of the forests here are like second, third generational forests that were essentially replanted after the lumber was cut down. And I think that would stand to reason in some ways. And it's good to know that they do replant the trees because I thought they didn't and they just kind of abandoned the land. They do. Sometimes nature replants them, unfortunately. So it takes a little longer. Um, One interesting way to sort of read the land, even if you're just in a, a local park, you can look at a wooded area and they have cradles and pillows. So when a giant tree with roots deep underground falls over naturally, um, oftentimes it rips up the roots. And so then all that organic material will start to degrade and form a mound where the roots are and that's the pillow. And then the cradle is the scooped out part of the earth that has been um, excavated by the falling of that tree so you can start to see oh here's where a tree fell and it fell that direction and uh, you can really feel at home in an area that is opaque without that knowledge i never would have thought about that you said a lot of fascinating things but that probably is the most fascinating fact i've learned so far so your friend essentially was let's go on this um a thousand foot hike that's four miles right four miles upward let's do this. And you get up there and you're like, this is great. I'm going to take this on as a passion and continue to do it. So first things first for context, and I I didn't Google this on purpose. What is considered the American Southwest? Like what states are in that? And I think you mentioned three geographies. So it was the plains, the desert, and the mountains. That's right. So these three geographies are within the American Southwest, but what is the American Southwest? Yes, so different people define it different ways. Um, Some folks have a a very narrow definition where it's sort of um, a Western film and maybe it's Arizona or maybe it's maybe New Mexico is thrown in there with it. Um, But to my mind, I sort of broadly define the American Southwest as California, Nevada, Utah, uh, Colorado even, uh, and then down to New Mexico and Arizona. So this big chunk of um, states. And uh, it's an area that is very uh, diverse in terms of its um, climate and uh, geography. So you can see a lot of 
little environmental uh, niches or niches um, by traveling a very short distance. And that was the perfect environment for me to level up and even have um, a bit of creativity in where I took my adventures. Uh, what terrain did I want to explore now? What skills did I want to add? And so bit by bit, um, that brought me to today where I decided it was time to write a book. Yes. I have another question based off what you said before. So you said your first climb was up to a thousand feet. And in the book, you mentioned that you went up to 11,000 feet or 14,000 feet. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. right. You got it. So my first part of this question is I went to Bogota. I'm, I'm probably butchering it. Bogota, Colombia. And when I arrived, I had altitude sickness. And so yeah. my question for you is number one, how did you acclimatize to that altitude? Especially, you know, hiking. I'm just flying in and I'm I'm feel this sick. But also, how much colder does it get for every a thousand feet that you go up? And how do you prepare for that in your hikes? Yeah. So uh the first question was about altitude sickness, right? Yeah. Um so on that first hike up to a thousand feet, um, it didn't play a factor. Um, it really starts um, once you get up to about 5,000 feet, um, you'll start to notice it, especially on exertion, as they say, when you're exercising. Um, and it's caused by not just less oxygen in the air, but less air pressure to force that oxygen into your cells um, in your lungs. And so, um, you can be tired, you can have headaches, um, and then once it gets more severe, you can have uh, hape and haste, high-altitude cerebral edema in the brain, and high-altitude pulmonary edema in the lungs. That's more, um, you know, Himalayan altitudes, and uh, it's, it's life-threatening. Yeah. But um, some people still carry little oxygen canisters for their 14ers, the 14,000-foot mountains, um, which are about as high as they get um, in North America. So um, the the temperature does drop. I think it's about uh, five and a half degrees Fahrenheit for every thousand feet of elevation change. So um, you have to look at both the absolute altitude that you're going up to, as well as the change in altitude, because you don't always start from sea level, of course. Mm -hmm. um, in the hike, but some of, I think my highest change in altitude was a uh, little over 10,000 feet in a day. And, you know, that's um, about two vertical miles. And uh, that, that dropped, I think about 30 degrees or so. I didn't do my 5.5 math, but it was, uh, it was uh, starting in the desert and finishing amongst the pine trees and going above tree line, even pretty neat. That's amazing. I mean, I don't know if I could do it. I think, and I was mentioning this earlier, I've had this fascination with mountains like Mount Everest. So yes. in my like undergrad, I would always write an essay about Mount Everest because any single urban planning problem you can think of, Mount, the Mount Everest region has it. Fascinating in some oh, ways. Yeah. But I'm, I would love to do that, but I don't have the fortitude for it. And I probably get to first base camp and tap out. And I feel like first base camp is a feat in of itself, but also the oh, cold... Yeah the cold would just, I think it'd be brutal. And I'm Canadian and I don't know why I'm saying that, but like, <laughs> the cold would be absolutely brutal. But now you wrote a book basically about the wildlife that you saw, the ghosts of the wilderness. And 
I have to ask, how did you decide that you wanted to marry the relationship between hiking and wilderness exploration? Or even how did you get into wilderness exploration? What sparked that interest? Well, I started to have minimum mileage goals for myself, where I wanted not to be able to say at the end of the year that I did so many miles, but to keep active and healthy and to be able to physically be able to continue to do this. I wanted to keep up at a certain level. Um, so I was always looking for new, interesting places to hike. Um, I had some go-tos, but I always preferred a new area because it was challenging for navigation and for the environment. So I started to sometimes go off trail where you were allowed to do that. Uh, but nothing else I saw, um, just small animals or uh, animals that are more common like deer. And I started to see that these deer had some intelligence that I didn't notice at first. Uh, one particular encounter, I remember seeing a single deer and the deer's head was bopping back and forth between me and the bushes over there. And uh, I saw it was looking at its friends or family. There were three or four deer kind of hiding over there. So it was assessing me the threat and then looking, are they okay? And um, I didn't think of animals that way before. So uh, you, you hear about some kind of iconic wildlife. Do you know the Home on the Range song? No, I don't know oh, that song. Okay, that might be um, uh, a U.S. Uh, song. We have a song called uh, Home on the Range and um, maybe a cowboy or someone is reminiscing Home, Home on the Range where the deer and the antelope play where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. So those are the lyrics. And <laughs> this antelope is really a pronghorn, which is quite a different creature. So that's classic. And I thought, I've never seen a pronghorn in all this hiking. Um, I'm in prime territory. Um, mountain lions all up and down the west coast of the U.S. Um, into Canada's west coast and then down into South America. I'd never seen a mountain lion. And um, scorpions, you hear about them being worldwide. So those were the three big animals that made it into the book. Um, and before I even had the idea of a book, I thought I should put some dedicated effort into seeing these animals that I wanted to see and see how far it takes me. That's actually very fascinating. So did you actually see the mountain lion? I didn't get that far. Well, no spoilers. Um, <laughs> I had a mountain lion encounter of sorts uh, with the help of some technology. So uh, oh. in the book, I did meet a woman who actually sat on the board of a charitable organization donate, uh, dedicated to helping mountain lions. And she had been outside every day for about 50 years. And she had seen five mountain lions, which sounds like a lot of mountain lions to me. But um, that's once one every 10 years ev uh, being outside every day. So uh, it turned out that a lot of these animals were quite elusive and were the ghosts of the wilderness that were there, but you couldn't quite see them. Um, so be careful if you're ever in mountain lion country, be prepared. I even carry some pepper spray should I need it. And I kind of know what not to do, uh, namely don't run. But I think the odds of running into a bad human downtown are probably a lot greater than running into a bad lion in the wilderness. 
Okay, for sure. Absolutely. I think we have this big hysteria about running into a bear on a regular day. And so before I get into more into the animals you saw and like why you wrote this book, what have you seen a bear? And what was that the, like? <laughs> the bear is one that didn't make it into the book because I had nothing to report and I've not seen it. Um, so my girlfriend's seen bears at very close range multiple times. Um, but for whatever reason, it's not happened for me. Um, what about you? Have you seen a bear? Actually, Toronto or there's a, a part of Toronto, a district called Scarborough. And they are quite prevalent there. So every couple of years, you oh. have a bear who just kind of walks through these suburban subdivisions. And a couple of years ago, the bear just kind of like started walking through a housing area. And the police were like, we don't know what to do. Like they had like 100 <laughs> police officers police officers the bear was not aggressive he was just walking through people's backyards just kind of exploring and um you just see the police officers in uniform like we we just don't know what to do so every so often we do we do get a bear to like walking through the city but i think we've moved into their environment and that's what it is they're just kind of coming home so that's unfortunate too in some ways at least you're going into their environment while and you're exploring where they live i think we've infiltrated where they live so it's like they have to explore our environment now it's a good way to look at it yeah that is a good way to look at it um i i don't know if you saw this part of the prologue uh where i was in uh, such a state of union and harmony with nature that i allowed some mosquitoes to bite me because i was in their territory and um I, I said, yes, feed, big girl. But I quickly changed my tune and, and, and ch- uh, just began a, a swatting frenzy. So the uh, the ideological um, uh, perfection that you might be going towards is sometimes difficult. You sometimes change that around in your head for whatever reason. <laughs> you do. You do. But actually, a side note to that, now that we're on mosquitoes. Watching a mosquito feed is a very fascinating thing to see, like especially the tiny ones. I've actually just let one feed on me once. Have just you? To see, to, wow. I just wanted to kind of see what they were doing and kind of what does your physical change into when you drink my blood, like Edward Cullen kind of, you know, but like uh-huh. mosquito, mosquito style. <laughs> I'm not afraid of them and they don't really bother me and I'm not allergic. The worst that could happen is the rare case of West Nile, but we're knocking on wood. Yeah. But I was just kind of like, what happens to the mosquito physiologically? Would we would we do that with a tick? Absolutely not. But we're going to take our risk on. We're going to take our chance on the mosquito for a second. But yes, actually talking about ticks, because I have a huge phobia of them. How do you protect yeah. yourself from them? And have you ever gotten one or two on all of your hikes? Oh, yeah. I have a, a big uh, phobia. And I think the tick might be one of the most dangerous animals out there. <laughs> because it can affect your health for the rest of your life. And uh, we're very fortunate in some ways um, here in the American Southwest that we don't have so much tick-borne illness, certainly not uh, uh, as, as much as I think Pennsylvania, which is um, yeah. the, the worst uh, area in North America for tick-borne illness. Um, so I know that I've seen people living there will, you know, strip down completely after every time they're out in the uh, woods and uh, have someone look them over with a, a flashlight. And I understand why they do that. Um, so I, I don't go to those extremes, but uh, mm-hmm. I do, you know, check myself, especially if I've been off trail or where a lot of 
um, brushes uh, going, uh, making contact with me. And I've had a, a number of ticks on me, um, not just on my clothes where I sort of get rid of them. And, and that's a bit hard to do sometimes because they're so flat, but where they've begun to embed themselves in my skin. Um, and you have to get them out. Fortunately, if you do within 24 hours, um, the risk of illness is really reduced because they start to feed and it's not till they throw up uh, about 24 hours later that they can regurgitate all of the um, germs into your bloodstream. So you want to get them off right away. Um, and I've seen them in um, woods and chaparral environments. Uh, chaparro is Spanish for um, scrub oak, sort of an oaky, oaky bush uh, that we have in, in the Southwest, um, like a scrubland, bush, bushland. And I've also seen them in uh, desert palm tree oases, funny enough. Uh, I didn't expect them out there. Oh my goodness gracious. I would probably freak out, start running around 12 times if I found one trying to hit that in me. But those like little greedy parasites eating till they throw up. <laughs> now I know yes. I hate them. I saw showering one time. There was uh, like a dot on my knee. I thought, oh, do I have a mole here or something? What is that? And yeah, I even scratched it and it, it was so deep. I didn't know until closer examination that that was the tick in there. I really had to get it out with some tweezers. That wasn't fun. Greedy little bugger. Good thing you're not afraid because I'm afraid of spiders. And my biggest fear is the centipede. And oh, so yeah. any any basement, like a lot of basements in Toronto have them. Really? Especially, wow. Yeah, especially if they're unfinished, like they have them. Um, and if, if it's like really cold down there, some I have friends who rent basements and they're like, yeah, I just saw one run across my floor. So we're, that's an issue we have here, but they don't really bite. <laughs> don't like them okay so uh, heading back to your hiking and your wilderness exploration what was your favorite animal to observe yeah so uh during the the book my my favorite animal was probably my mountain lion encounter but i can't say too much about that um <laughs> during uh some of the other stories that i shared in the book uh, there were some small animals um there's a desert hare that uh, surprises you it sort of just hides in a bush in the desert and when you get close enough it takes off running at top speed and it doesn't stop running and uh, most animals will you know have sort of an alarm or an alert like a squirrel standing on on their hind legs you might think of and then they dash off at a ways but they don't just keep running to the horizon <laughs> so <laughs> i really like that it sort of made me feel like it had pickpocketed me and it was uh making off with my wallet or something um but one of my favorite animals uh, to see uh, are just lizards. And that didn't make it in the book. It's far too common. Those aren't ghosts or anything. But if you're hiking in the morning, deserts can get quite cold overnight. You might see these uh, lizards and they're very slow. They're cold-blooded creatures. They don't yet, haven't yet warmed up to move. Um, so you can get very close to them. And then um, during the heat of the day, they'll sometimes do lizard push-ups. Yeah, I don't know if you, you see pet lizards doing that sometimes, um, and it can be to get attention um, from their human or or from another lizard as a mating um, attractant uh, or as a threat uh, to say, I'm tough, don't mess with me. <laughs> so I think lizards are probably one of the early ones, one of the easy ones, but I always enjoy them. And there's so many. 
I love the fact that they're doing push-ups to get attention from like a potential partner. Isn't that what humans <laughs> We work on our fitness <laughs> to be more attractive to the opposite sex or same sex, whichever. We work on our fitness. I'm like, that's actually very fascinating that animals do this as well. Yeah, we have machines and free weights and they just do the lizard push-ups. <laughs> they literally are. That's actually amazing. Do you see snakes quite often, like branching off the lizard chain? Yeah, yeah, I, we we do see a lot of snakes out uh, here uh, in this part of the country. Um, a lot of rattlesnakes and a lot of Western diamondback rattlesnakes, which sounds so severe and dangerous. Um, so you, you have to be careful for sure. And you have to give them uh, about six feet uh, distance. Um, in the book, I talk about giving them six foot social distancing during COVID. And um, that's what you have to do. Sometimes that means stepping off the trail. Um, and then also other uh, snakes sometimes will get very close to you. Uh, one went right past my girlfriend's foot and she didn't even know it. And already it was across the trail and gone. And she was in front of me on one particular hike. Um, I was worried she was going to step on it and that would possibly be a bad situation. But uh, yeah. yeah, they they get really close to you sometimes, and then they'll sort of rear up. Um, and if they're a rattler, will rattle the tail. Oh, don't mess with me. You can hear it, like you can actually hear it, like a maraca. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe a little higher pitched than that. Um, okay. but... <laughs> I'm like literally imagining Cinco de Mayo, but like with a snake. <laughs> that is actually terrifying we have garden snakes here and you'll see them every so often but they're they're harmless they're like these skinny like green things and you think it's a twig or kind of like oh, yeah. a what do you call those things like a grasshopper yeah. you think it's kind of that but it's not and they are so afraid of you that they they will leave that's kind of like how it is here that's good. Do you have lizards up there as well? Uh, in the Midwest for me, it was, I think, too cold for lizards. But uh, what about uh, for you? I think I saw my first lizard in Florida. Oh, yeah. Great spot New for Florida. them. Yes, I would see snakes in Florida. Um, see alligators. Is it alligators or crocodiles? One of the two. They look the same to me. They're interchangeable to me. But um, you'd see those. Um, and that's like kind of my knowledge of the reptiles. In your hiking and your exploration of animals, in what environment are wildlife the most unique? Is it the desert, the mountain, or the plains? And they all have uniqueness, but like every one and every environment has their kind of quirks. Do they have like any yeah. interesting things about them? I think my favorite environment is uh, the desert. And uh, of course, these environments, even the three in the book that I focus on, mountains, deserts, and plains, you can have... Uh, mountains in the desert. So they're not mutually exclusive necessarily, but um, typically when you get high enough, the desert sort of disappears and is no longer the desert we think of anyway. Um, so I really like the desert environment. It's very hot. It's very dangerous. You need to bring enough water and um, take a lot of precautions, but you're out there and you're struggling with the plants and the animals. And there's so many unique and interesting plants and animals that are adapted to that environment. Um, we have something called a kangaroo rat. Um, and it's not so ratty as it is maybe more chipmunky. So uh, don't be put off by the name, but it hops around. Um, and it uh, not only gets its water from its food, 
the nuts and such that it eats, but it can uh, metabolize water from the hydrogen in its food and the oxygen that it breathes. Um, and that is just incredible. Uh, scientists didn't even know about that until recently. So the amount of adaptation that plants and animal, animals go through out in the desert uh, makes it a place just to call home and, and a pleasure every time I'm out there. It's so uh, foreboding to many folks, but I'm, I'm so comfortable there. And um, on the plant side, there are uh, these bushes called creosote bushes that can live for thousands of years. And I talk about one that uh, is the oldest creosote bush that we know of, and they suck water from deep underground. And one time I saw uh, some desert holly, a little parasitic vine on the creosote. And I wanted to protect this, this beautiful bush, this creosote bush. So I was going to rip the holly off. And I said, ah, ah, leave no trace, you know, don't do that. And um, I, my ignorance at the time, I didn't know that desert holly berries are an essential source of food and water for birds. So uh, by doing that, I would have been causing the birds harm that live out there. But you know what? That's very interesting. I did not know that berries could be parasitic. I did not know yeah. that. So that's poisonous. I think regular heart. holly is also parasitic, if I'm not mistaken, like mistletoe and holly, Christmas time. <laughs> so basically it's poisonous to us. If uh, not to, uh, Well, let's see. If it, In the case of desert holly, yeah. some Native American tribes would eat the berries when they are white and they were able to do that well um for for us i've not eaten desert holly i love foraging and eating food out of the wilderness but i didn't want to risk that one um, no, i know but i think para the parasitic element is more on their hosts like it's really oh. bad for the bush that it's uh grown its roots into the branches and sucking the nutrients and the water out of that bush um so it doesn't rely on um, its own roots in the ground. There's another plant called um, the snow plant, which is found in high altitude uh, coniferous forests of pine trees. And it just jumps out amongst, amongst the snow. If you see it, it sits at the roots of a pine tree and will burrow down into the ground, into its root to get uh, nutrients from the tree and it doesn't do photosynthesis it's um, almost looks fungal it's just a red plant uh, against the snow so uh, perhaps that's where some of the red and green of Christmas came from who knows <laughs> the red actually, plant against the green pine tree this is so fascinating now I'm learning about plants and how they take water sources from other plants and I did not know this you know now I want to know about fungus I know mushrooms are fungus some are safe to eat, some are not. How do they just grow in your grass? And it's always so fascinating to me. And I'm, I've never explored it deeper in any capacity. All but. these mycelium, all these strands of interconnecting fungal tissue, connecting the different mushrooms. So much of it's underground, um, not just the mushroom that grows up. And that can really ruin your yard if you get yeah. <laughs> massive underyard growth of mushrooms. <laughs> We get a few every year in the backyard and I'm just like, ee! and I run away. I'm so like, I will eat them in my food, which is a recent thing. But if I see them in my grass, this is so creepy because the way they grow out together in the yeah. middle of the grass, and I'm just, I never like looking at it. So I'm just mowing over. They are creepy, aren't they? They're just sort of like they, 
they get rid of dead logs and they grow and yes. yeah, there's something about them. I agree. They can just grow anywhere, which is really fascinating. Okay. So I was going to ask you, what's a fun fact about the American Southwest that we don't know that you also didn't include in your book? Oh, let's see here. Well, I, I think one fact that I did include first in the book is uh, maybe another reptile, the, the turtle, the desert tortoise on the land will make burrows. And um, I've seen the burrows. I haven't seen the tortoise yet. And they're sort of shaped like a shell, like a semicircular shell. <laughs> you can see, you can tell, oh, that's a, a tortoise burrow. Uh, so that's kind of neat that they would just force their body through there and form form the burrow uh, that way. The other maybe fun fact that I didn't include in my book that might be more of a pop culture reference, but also bringing in this variety of landscapes that we've been talking about is um, the 30 mile zone around Hollywood. Uh, so you might have heard about TMZ. Uh, I think it's yes. a celebrity news source, Hollywood <laughs> gossip sort of thing. Oh, well, yeah. The TMZ is uh, named after the 30 mile zone and um, Hollywood studios will have such a variety of landscapes within 30 miles of Hollywood and Vine that they're able to go and record um, scenes in deserts and cities and forests. And so contractually, as I understand it, uh, if you're in a union in Hollywood, you get paid a lower rate, you get paid the local rate if you're within the 30 mile zone of Hollywood and Vine. Um, but if you go beyond the 30 miles, even if it's 31 miles, then you get paid the travel rate. So wow. that brings in a little bit of Hollywood culture, <laughs> the Southwest landscape diversity and um, Hollywood gossip, I suppose. Okay, this is great, especially with the SAG protests going on. <laughs> this is a great yes. pop culture <laughs> and wildlife fact that I didn't know. I basically am learning so much right now. But I have to ask because obviously very like when you're in an urban environment, animals become accustomed to you yeah. as people. Like I've had squirrels just come up to me. My friend has a bunch of raccoons that knock on her back door to socialize with her at night. Um, and we have dogs, obviously. Are there any animals in wildlife that are actually social and that will interact with you? Because obviously you, you mentioned that you don't see uh, a lot yeah. of them. They're, they're hard to see. They're kind of ghosts. They're protecting themselves. But are there any that will just come out and say, hey, how are you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I don't think that there are any species that I can think of right now mm -hmm. that as a species are, are social with humans. You know, so much of what they do is um, to protect them. And we are predators or we can just do stupid things and, you know, hurt them. So they, they always keep their distance. Um, you know, you might see individuals, especially in an urban environment, that have um, acclimated to humans. A lot mm -hmm. of crows, you know, in parking lots and such will come up to you. Um, I suppose maybe historically... One theory about how uh, dogs came to be is that uh, perhaps early humans or even um, other species of humans like Neander Neanderthals or Neanderthals, as they say, in the Neanderthal Valley of Germany, where they were discovered, um, 
maybe they had killed some animal and and these humans had meat in the cave and maybe there were some wolves outside and the wolves were allowed to sort of eat the scraps um, and maybe uh, eventually the wolves were used as hunting partners and so very slowly over time the one theory is perhaps the wolves changed into dogs and uh, that's how um, we have our domestic uh, pets today I mean, that would make sense. I, I'm always thinking about how animals in urban environments have become so accustomed to us. I think the best one was yeah, that my friends yeah. and I were eating pizza and wings and a chipmunk just came, opened the box of wings, like opened the box and took a bread and wing and was like sitting with <laughs> us and picking off the bread, like just did not like join the circle. It was just like picking off the bread off the wing. And then when it was done, put the chicken down because it wasn't interested in that and took another wow. one and was eating off the bread. And I always think about the fact that they're so accustomed to us now that you never even think about the fact that there could be any fear there. There was any fear at any time. And I don't think about the protective mechanisms they have to use ever. So this is very interesting to see that in the wilderness, they really do maintain that. That's interesting. Uh, my friend that lives right outside of Phoenix, Arizona, talks about these, uh, they, they look like wild pigs, but they're a related species called a peccary, or locally, they call them javelinas. Um, and they will just have wild hogs going through <laughs> trash cans and neighborhoods. And it's not great. They're in packs, you know, <laughs> wild <laughs> hogs. <laughs> That's like the raccoons here. We don't you don't mess with a Toronto raccoon. That's like a known yeah. fact. Really? Wow. They're mean. They're really, really mean. And they will look at you. And if you say anything to them, they'll come after you. It's like a Canadian goose. Um, they're yeah. very mean. Very mean. And if you if you try to pass them, sometimes they won't let you. And I'm like, you know you're protected. You know the law will arrest me if I do anything to you. I know you know. And that's why you won't let me cross the street. So you'll have to cross over in order to cross. They're mean. They're just wow. mean. So it's like interesting how it's so different in this environment. But my only context is the urban environment. Um, I also wanted to ask you. So during a quick this question, idea, if I could, uh, about oh. the, the raccoons, you know, sure. sports teams like very fierce mascots. Uh, are any of the local sports teams named the Toronto raccoons by any chance? Uh, I don't think they would do that. They'd probably see the bandit. Like we have bandit brewery, which is like a brewery oh. kind of like with the raccoon um, logo. I don't know if we do. We're deathly afraid of our raccoons here. <laughs> like, like Not to be messed with. <laughs> no, we're really afraid of our raccoons. People, I think we have Instagram pages against them. We, we just don't like our raccoons. And uh -huh. the city of Toronto did an initiative a few years back to make these like raccoon like resistant bins. And the raccoons just figured out how to open all of them. And that's how afraid we are of them. <laughs> that we made specific bins that didn't work. My understanding is that in uh, Yosemite National Park, um, that used to be when a bear would come in contact with humans or would uh, frequent campgrounds and such, they would shoot the bear. And so one alternative that they've found is they'll capture the bear and put them in an environment where they create and test um, bear proof containers. And so they'll put the bear proof container out there in the bear's enclosure and let them go to town. And then the bear is able to um, 
not go back to the wilderness, not teach their fellow bears that humans are a great place to go for food, but they're able to live out their life and then test these bear safety containers. So yeah, seems like a good balance maybe. It might be. It might be. I mean, I'm pretty sure it, it, the bear probably took longer to get through the container than our raccoons did. But I trust that like, <laughs> it's also interesting to see how we can social engineer animals to a certain degree, <laughs> which is like intriguing in that respect. But I mean, that's a good idea, actually, just to kind of move them out and not have them dependent on us and are dependent on our areas the way our rats are. But <laughs> we're rats oh, in New Yorker. Yeah. Very, 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 very terrifying animals. But you know what? They're very intelligent. So I will give them that. Um, That's true. Very intelligent. Um, I think I wanted to know, when you go on hiking expeditions, especially if they're like overnight, how do you house yourself? And how do you like protect yourself from potential animals coming in the night? Yeah. You know, in a desert environment, especially, sometimes it's very hot overnight. And um, I don't like to camp in temperatures above the 80s. So I'll camp it with a, a temperature of you know, 85, 89 degrees overnight. I have a little battery operated fan in my tent uh, to help with that. Um, but beyond that, I'll go to the hotel and then I'll make sure <laughs> to fill up my insulated water bottles with ice in the morning when, when I head out. Uh, that's not as nice, you know, you have to detour, but it also has all the comforts of home, so to speak. Um, but otherwise, you know, sometimes I'll carry a tent, uh, sort of backpack, uh, and go out and then you're able to, uh, spend the night in the field, so to speak. Mm. Uh, or you can car camp at a campground or a dispersed camping, which I love to get away from people to have your own peace and quiet. Um, however, uh, that, does bring, as you said, uh, the possibility of animal encounters. Yeah. And um, I, I love solo hiking. I love hiking with people as well. Uh, but solo hiking and camping can really make you afraid. You're out there <laughs> in the <laughs> desert. You might be you know, the only person around. And um, you just sort of have to get used to it. And you have to accept that risk. And you have to know what to do in various animal encounters. Um, one. Yeah thing that I also do is carry um, a personal locator beacon. And there's all sorts of commercial products now that mm -hmm. allow two-way communication, but it's just a satellite rescue. You, you hit the button if you need it, and then your message is passed to local authorities. So that gives me a little bit of um, peace of mind. Fortunately, I've never had to push it. So wait, how long does it take to go up 11,000 feet then if you're hiking it? enough time to come back to your car or like the hotel and second of all does your cell phone just not work at a certain point oh yeah your cell phone doesn't work <laughs> in very many I, places unfortunately i would um, die <laughs> designated wilderness areas uh there's a legal definition in the u.s anyway about how these are areas where humans do not remain and there's flight oh. over uh over flight rules so that you don't have noise from aircraft um if there are trails, they have to be maintained with non-engine, um, uh, you know, manual tools, not with a fuel or, or anything in a chainsaw, for example. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. What was your, your initial question? I was tying it back uh, into it. Sorry. No, I was like, wait, my phone's not going to work. And then, wait, how long does it take to get up there to 11,000 or 14,000 feet, like, in a day? How long would that take? 
Oh, so like in the prologue, I think it was a 22 mile day um, on that hike that I was talking about. And yeah. so I started right before sunrise and uh, I talk about the Alpen glow. So the sun is below the horizon, but you can see because the mountains are so high that the sun's rays will actually hit the mountain before it rises. And um, I got back, um, I don't know, it was, it was in the summertime. So the sun was up a little bit longer. I got back with plenty of daylight left. Uh, and I did those 22 miles and got up to 11,000 feet. I think it was maybe a change in elevation of, of five or 6,000 feet. Um, so it takes a lot of athletic endurance and ability to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've talked to some folks who will do 30 mile days. Um, my max has been just below 30 for a day. And uh, if you do that with any regularity, I don't know, maybe you get used to it. Maybe your joints wear out. But, you know, use trekking poles, even if you're healthy and don't have joint problems so that you don't when you're older to absorb that shock of going up and down. Um, no, you know, good techniques for doing that. Uh, but don't start there. Don't start at 20. Start maybe four, move up to seven, move up to 10. And then for me, the jump from like 13 to 25 was not that big a jump. So uh, once you're up, at that level, I suppose you can see what you're capable of. That is insane. Now I'm wondering how come at Mount Everest, well, how tall is Mount Everest anyways? It's over 22,000 feet. I'll Google yeah. it. That's really high. Cause they go it's to the first base and they wait. They go to the second one and they wait. They never just go straight for it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know why that is actually. Okay. Uh, why? <laughs> so it's right below 30,000 feet, um, okay. the peak is. But the change in elevation is something like 12,000, maybe 15,000. I might be wrong about that. But so you start pretty high already. And then, as we talked about, you get higher and higher. There's less and less oxygen, right? less air pressure. So you, you can't physically do as much. <laughs> you you um... might have seen uh, Everest documentaries where they take you know, three or four breaths very quickly for one step. And that's because they need that much uh, breathing to get the oxygen to take that step. And you'll, you'll sometimes hyperventilate intentionally at lower altitudes as well. Um, but wow. I think it's the cold and oh, yeah. the, the lack of oxygen that really saps you. How did you do in uh, Bogota, Colombia? You were talking about, did you acclimate after... A day or two, or did you kind of struggle through your whole trip? Um, I acclimated after two and a half days. So when I arrived, my head felt like it was going to explode. That was how it felt. Oh, yeah. And then as I was driving in the taxi, it was like my body was here, but my head was just going forward, which was I didn't I couldn't understand why. And so when I got to the hotel, they were like, "We think you have altitude sickness. Don't drink any alcohol." even though it's free. And <laughs> <laughs> and so the next day I woke up and I was like, okay, like I feel better, but mind you, I took like aspirin, Advil, my puffers, everything. And I thought it was asthma related, but I went for a walk and I just couldn't do it. It was really, really tough. And then when I got back, I looked like I had just ran a marathon and all I did was watch Sex oh. in the City because my head just thought, I just thought my head was going to burst. So I'm kind of glad I didn't go up to the um, – they have this kind of chapel or church on a hill, 
and you have to go up and like in a cable car. I don't know if you're familiar with Columbia and I can't remember the name now, but I'm not. Um, no. But I'm kind of glad I didn't do that because you're going to go up like farther up in the mountains. And I don't think it would have been the best decision. But by the time I was, it was time to go, I was perfectly acclimatized. But the first two days were really, really tough. Really tough. But so Sounds we'll see. like you got a bad case. Yeah. My mom was fine. She's living her best, <laughs> best <laughs> life. I was like, I'm like, I'm built for flat planes. <laughs> But it's like it's very interesting. Like, like Toronto is a very flat city, and I was in Saint John's, Newfoundland, and I was in Montreal, Quebec, and I found walking up the hills to be pretty intense there because we're not used to it here. So it's little things like that for sure. I think Toronto is about the same, almost you know, a couple hundred feet above sea level elevation uh, where I actually live, and. Um, you think about people who live in Denver a mile high and they're sort of always acclimated. So when I do very high um, altitude hikes, I try to acclimate and exercise while I acclimate and slowly increase my altitude before my big day, the big hike on the big day. Um, but I found that maybe just constantly going up and down <laughs> every, every week, all year round, maybe I'm up there enough that uh, I don't get hit too bad for the most part, but it's unpredictable. You know, it really is unpredictable. And I've had worse days at lower elevations and better days at higher ones other times. So you, you can never predict it perfectly. You really can't. Um, you know, my last question for you, let's focus back on your book and why you're here. Why did you write this book and how long did it take you to write the book? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I had not planned to write this book. I didn't kind of come up with this idea and then do all my hikes. I did my hikes and then I thought, let me write about this. Um, so by the time that um, I got to that point, I thought, gosh, I have all these wonderful stories. And along the way, I've done a lot of research about the areas um, and the history and uh, the native people, the animals I had encountered. And I thought um, that this would be very cool uh, if I could write a book that would be the type of book I would like to, re to read. And um, maybe I could share my stories with not just the hiking community, but uh, people uh, in general, uh, whether it's in North America or around the world. And um, I'm really pleased with the way it came out. I intentionally tried to make it all killer, no filler, and something <laughs> you, that you could finish in a few hours. Um, some hiking books that I read, uh, sort of drag things out. They'll say like, yeah. uh, oh, I, I laid out all my gear and then I packed it back up and I laid it <laughs> out again. Did I have everything? I wasn't sure. Like that that means nothing. So I skipped all of that. And um, I, I'm hoping that uh, folks can enjoy that. So it only took me um, a couple of days to outline the book in my head because I lived through it and I sort of know, knew what I wanted to communicate. And then um, it's just over 100 pages in paperback form. And I did that in about three weeks uh, in the evenings and weekends when I wasn't hiking. Uh, very quick. I never expected to be that quick. And then over three months, I got feedback and made my own edits. So it came together uh, more quickly than I could have anticipated. And I'm really happy to have it out and share it with the world. Um, it's available in paperback form. Um, through a variety of, of booksellers, you can probably get it uh, ordered through any bookseller, but um, 
It's at Barnes and Nobles. It's at uh, Books a Million. Uh, but the main place to get it is on Amazon. And it's also available in uh, Kindle format there as well. Okay. I can't wait to finish reading it. I know I just got it today, but I can't wait to finish reading it. I'm so intrigued by the book, by everything that you've said today. I'm, I'm excited to find out more. Um, and I will put the link to where you can find it in the bio, in the show notes, so anybody can find it if they want to. Um, my last question about the book, though, is the cover is stunning. How did you get it designed? How did you find a designer? And how did you settle on the cover? Oh, I'm glad that you like it. You know, um, not only does it feature the three animals um, that I had mentioned earlier, the mountain lion, the pronghorn, and the scorpion, and you'll notice that scorpion's glowing. You'll have to read about that. But uh, it features the three environments, the uh, mountains, the plains, and the desert. So um, I was happy that... Um, the final design was able to do that. So I got a freelance uh, graphic artist to help with the cover and uh, she did a great job. And yeah. we had a uh, discussion back and forth about uh, what I wanted, uh, what I thought was important. And she came with some creative ideas and designs. And then we tweaked it from there. Um, one interesting thing is that she was using some stock art initially. And for the scorpion in the desert, she put a lobster in the desert and I thought, <laughs> Oh no, that won't do. You know, I, I, I want to have the actual animal. So I guess scorpions and lobsters sort of look similar now that I think about it. So yeah. I had a good laugh uh, during the creative process there. And uh, I'm glad that we got an actual scorpion on the cover. That's amazing. Well, Daniel, Thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast and record and talk about your book. And thank you for the book. I'm super duper excited and it's going to quench my hiking thirst and my my desire to learn more about different environments and the way that we navigate them. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Alexandria. It's been a lot of fun talking and I hope the listeners enjoy our discussion as well and that they will. I think they will. I really do. There's a lot of nuggets in there. <laughs> <laughs>